and welcome to this edition of Biting Talk with Two Chicks, Britain's liveliest food and drink podcast, now with effortless eggs and no yolks, pasteurised and packed for your fluffy omelette pleasure. On this week's show, we look at the astonishing rise and rise of the avocado. When I grew up, an avocado pear was only ever a rare starter at a smart dinner party served in the skin with a vinaigrette. Today in the UK, 6,000 are sold every hour. Is our love affair with this South and Central American fruit a matter of global trading pride or a worrying, unsustainable, water-guzzling villain? I'll be quizzing Javier Ikiwa, CEO of the World Avocado Organization. Then, you'll have noticed the two chicks mantra bolted onto our podcast. But who are the two chicks? Where's the yolk? And are we cracking up putting egg whites in a carton? I'll meet one of the co-founders of the business, Anna Ritchie. And fresh from opening a new branch of his Spanish restaurant Tapas Revolution in Brighton, but actually not so fresh after celebrating his wife's birthday, Omar Alaboy joins me to talk tapas, tortilla, and I don't know, something else Spanish that begins with a T. Tomatoes, perhaps. But first, we head to California and say welcome to Biting Talk to Javier Equiwa. Now, the United Kingdom is the second biggest market in Europe for these items that I'm about to discuss. There are 6,000 of these things sold each hour. I have a feeling that actually they're out selling bananas now. I'm talking about avocados. It is, it may have escaped your notice for some reason, uh, World Avocado Month. Do we celebrate? Do we condemn? We're going to talk about avocados, this extraordinary fruit with its unbelievable rise with a man who knows about them. He is the CEO of the World Avocado Organization, Javier Ekiwa. Welcome to Biting Talk. And thank you so much for the, your kind invitation. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Well, we like to reach around the world on this show. And um, uh, Somerset likes to say hello to Southern California. <laughs> I feel almost the Southern Californian rays on my back as I broadcast from an attic in Somerset where I'm staying at the moment. What I can tell you is downstairs in the kitchen, there is an enormous bowl full of avocados ripening gently. Uh, you're a man with a bit of a political background. Now you're helping to, to market the avocado message. There's lots we want to talk about. Personally speaking, Javier, what is it about the avocado that gets you excited? I gather you are um, of uh, Latino origin. There's 60 million of you in the United States. You are huge consumers of avocado. Did you inherit your love for avocados or, uh, you know, is it something you, you, you remember coming across in your life? You know, a great, great question. I inherited from my ancestors, obviously, including my mother, my grandmother and my great grandmother. And I also learned how to eat them because I was fed avocados as soon as I could eat solid foods. And this has been confirmed my, by my mother when I was uh, six months old. So I have had a long love affair with avocados since I was six months. The reason why I love them so much uh, is very simple. They are truly the ultimate food item for me and the ultimate superfood. Uh, now that we have uh, learned that uh, they are the ultimate uh, food as it relates to health, as it relates to versatility. And of course, as it relates to flavor, just last night I was having, you know, a, uh, a chicken vegetable soup and I put avocado on top of it and it made it so much better. 
How many days can you go without eating avocado? I cannot. It's like drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I cannot stop drinking water and I cannot stop eating avocados. Now, I'm uh, 51 years old. When I grew up in the 70s, mm. I never saw an avocado. Um, it, there was never a, a bowl of avocados. Life has changed enormously for all sorts of foodstuffs. But the avocado has shown this quite astonishing growth. Um, tell me, what was it that actually propelled the avocado to go from its traditional base where it's grown in sort of Central and Southern America to reach around the world and, and, and embrace Europe? Um, tell me a bit of the story of, of how the humble avocado became this sort of king of, of fruits? Well, it, it, again, it, that goes back to uh, many years ago and here in California. Uh, I think it started uh, the love affair of avocados uh, here in the U.S. Uh, and it started really with Mexican food. Uh, uh, Mexican food has become more popular now than a lot of classic American food. Tacos, for example, you cannot have a taco with out on, without avocado. And, 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 and it started with all of that. And now, you know, salsa, for example, has, uh, is more popular now than ketchup. So the, it started here in, in California, this California romanticism of eating, for example, fish tacos with avocado. It spread throughout the US and then worldwide, in my opinion. In, in Europe, for example, Europeans did not know what avocados were 30 years ago. Uh, France, interestingly enough, was the first uh, EU country that started consuming avocados back in the 60s. And we know this for a fact. And, and hence the reason why France uh, continues to be the largest market for avocados. But I have a prediction to make, and that is that the UK will surpass France in the next five years. Another prediction is that Germany will become also a huge consumer of avocados. Right now, they're number three, but they could also surpass even uh, the UK once it becomes number one. Now, I had uh, a couple of uh, food writing friends of mine staying for the weekend, and I was telling them that I was going to interview you um, this week for Biting Talk. And uh, they saw the number of avocados on my, in my bowl, and they looked at me with horror. One of them told me he'd actually given up avocados. Now, you talk about the fact that you need avocados as much as you need water. If there's one thing an avocado needs, it is water, lots of water, 320 litres for each avocado. Now, there is growing concern across the world from people who are interested in embracing and promoting sustainability about the avocado. Now, you are the head of this big global organisation of avocados. Are you worried about the continued growth? Um, because it does, of course promote monoculture in some of the countries it comes from. It does take water from other farms. You have to, you know, you've got huge amounts of water, of course, traveling within the avocados themselves. Let's just address this problem before we end on a good note about what we can do with these wonderful things. Be honest with me. Do you have a sense of the danger of the numbers that are, that are involved now in avocados? I don't. And the reason for that is because I think uh, media uh, is doing a great job misinforming people about the real story of avocados and water. Uh, and the reason for that is they always compare 
just like a recent story that appeared last week, the tomato, which is the food item that consumes the least, uh, the least water uh, to produce, especially hydroponic tomatoes. Uh, but if you look at the things that the typical uh, consumer buys, such as animal proteins like like a dairy, like beef, like chicken, uh, rice. Not not not. Let's talk about non animal protein items like rice, chocolate, coffee. We're talking about 10, 20, 30, 40 times more it takes to produce uh, water-wise than avocados. It's, I'm perplexed by this one. You know, it's like this, this restaurant that stopped serving avocados because of the water issue, but yet they, they serve pork sausages and steaks. And I was scratching my head. How can you compare 15,000 liters with the few liters that the avocado uh, consumes to produce? It's perplexing, really. It is truly perplexing to me. If you're going to be, it, when, when people write these stories, if they're going to be honest, they, then they should be switching completely to a plant-based diet. And yes, they should start eating tomatoes every day. Or should they, they should only eat tomatoes all the time. Yes, I mean, it's a very complex picture. You can't, you know, stopping one thing doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, affect uh, the other things. But but it, But it's also, is it not the fact that you know, you have this beast of an industry and nothing, none of what you say detracts from the fact that it, it does suck water and, you know, and can suck the life out of other communities, you know, parts of, uh, you know, farming communities, Mexico, where, as I said, if there's a monoculture, um, those who aren't involved in that business uh, can suffer. Let's just address that. When you get these enormous farms in countries like Mexico, solely involved in the highly lucrative business of farming avocados. Is there not a strain on other local farmers who find that they can't get the water, that the environment is damaged because of the overuse of pesticides and the over, over farming of avocados in those areas? I, I want to clarify one thing before you know, I answer that. First of all, Mexico, most of the avocado production in the, produ the avocado producing states are naturally irrigated by uh, rainfall. So that is incorrect to give Mexico, with all due respect, as an, a good example. Uh, so no, Mexico is not a good example. There are other countries, yes, that are irrigating, uh, but a lot of them are very smart in the way they irrigate. Peru is a very good example. They're capturing the water from the snow-capped Andes and using that to irrigate avocados in the deserts. That water otherwise would disappear. Okay, and if there is irrigation, naturally what there also is is cartels who seem to be extracting huge sums of money in terms of protection from Mexican farmers. Is, we re we've read about this quite a lot last year, particularly in the, in the Sunday Times newspaper, British newspaper. Um, was that just a scare story or was that something that, that concerns you? It does not concern me because, again, there are thousands and thousands of small producers in Mexico producing avocados. It's not like a, the cartel has a stronghold on all of those thousands and thousands small producers. Uh, yes, there are bad apples, but there's bad apples everywhere, including in the UK, uh, including in Germany. It's like I give this as an example. 
does it mean that all German cars are bad because Volkswagen uh, got caught cheating on emissions and fined billions of dollars and there were executives thrown in jail for that, for lying? Does it mean that all German cars are bad? No. Just like does it mean that all avocados are bad because there are those problems? No. The problem that we have is because we're the celebrity of the produce world. It's like kind of like being like the Kardashians or the Jenners. You know, they eat, people either love us, which is the vast majority, but there are some people that hate us, don't like us because we're the celebrity. And that's the reason why we also, in many ways, we are probably the sexiest product in the supermarket, at least the most famous, I can tell you that. That's why we're talking. <laughs> Yes, well, there you go. Let's get to grips with the the avocados. We see it here in the you know in the domestic market. We see it in supermarkets across across the UK. What what's the reality? How does it work? Are avocados uh, picked um, in a in a fairly raw state like bananas and then held at you know semi frozen conditions so they can be ripened um, in in laboratories in supermarkets or just on your uh, in your bowl in your kitchen? What's the, what's the process there? You know, it's interesting that you say that because most people don't know that the best place to store an avocado is on the tree itself. The avocado will not start its natural maturing process, not until it's cut. And yes, they're shipped to Europe, they're shipped to, to Asia, they're shipped to the US. And some countries like ready-to-eat avocados, so they ripen the avocados just like they do bananas. When they cut bananas, they put them on the boat, and then they ripen them at destiny. In this case, like, for example, in, in, in the Netherlands. It's the same thing. But there's a lot of other supermarkets that have the, give consumers the choice of buying ready-to-eat or hard avocados that you can ripen at home. So it's, it's kind of like you can buy both, really. So it's up to you, to you to decide which avocado you like. Yes, people like the convenience of ripening an avocado. But ripening an, an avocado is no different than ripening a banana. When you go buy a banana, all of those bananas have been ripened in, in, in chambers. And most people don't know that. Because when they arrive, they're completely green. Now, if there's one thing that upsets me, it's uh, going to a restaurant, maybe having avocado that's served on the side uh, for breakfast, and the avocado is still chilled. Do you have these obsessions? I think an avocado should be room temperature when it's on a plate. What, what do you say, Javier? Absolutely. I mean, you should uh, take your avocado from the refrigerator and leave it an hour before you start eating it. It should always be room temperature. Absolutely. And just give me some of your favorite uh, favorite recipes. Um, I'm sure that you also put little slivers under your eyes to keep that amazing Akiwa <laughs> complexion. Uh, well, the, the, thanks to all of the avocados that I've eaten in my life, yes, I think that's the reason. Uh, uh, my favorite uh, way of eating an avocado, my favorite way of eating an avocado is out of, a, out of the shell, to tell you the truth. But I also love my famous uh, 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 avocado smoothie. I like my avocado smoothie bowl. <laughs> I like my favorite way of eating avocados with eggs. Uh, 
Interestingly enough, toast, yes, I like avocado toast, but it's not my favorite. I much, again, I much rather eat avocados in their natural form out of, out of the, uh, the shell. Yeah, I have to say, I like mine on sourdough toast, a little bit of good butter, some Marmite. I'm sure you know Marmite. Yes, of course. Over there in Southern California. Um, room temperature avocado and then salt, pepper and some chili flakes. That keeps me. Uh, that keeps me happy. Oh, that's fantastic! Why would you put? Uh, why? Why? Why would you combine animal fats with uh, plant-based fats? Anything that makes things taste wonderful. I'm a big fan <laughs> of that. Okay. okay. Now, listen. Do you ever get sick of talking about avocados? Never. 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 Seriously. Seriously. Day in, day out. Day I mean, in, come on. Day out. I mean, uh, I would say not eighteen hours a day. <laughs> Basically, because, you know, of the time differences, I have to deal with retailers all over the world. Just like uh, uh, yesterday, I was talking to retailers in in the Gulf, you know, in Dubai uh, and in Qatar. So, no, not at all. Listen, Javier, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Um, Thank you for being so honest, for defending the avocado and for sharing some recipes. You didn't admit to whether you put it underneath your eyes. Let's just assume that you do. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, regular listeners to Biting Talk, or should I say devotees, may have noticed that we have a new sponsor in Two Chicks. So what are Two Chicks? Are there Two Chicks behind the brand? What are they doing? What's all this stuff about egg whites and no yolks? Well, I'm delighted to say that one of the co-founders of Two Chicks is now joining me. And it's a big, warm welcome to Biting Talk to Anna Ritchie. Hi, Anna. Hi, William. So Two Chicks, tell us about this. You very kindly sent me a few cartons. I've seen them around in a few supermarkets. Business is obviously, you know, booming. And uh, it's obviously an interesting new market that you've discovered. Egg whites in a carton, really? Who wants them? Um, so the idea actually came out of Los Angeles and we launched the business back in 2007. So in, in the US, they sell cartons of liquid egg white in all the supermarkets um, as a healthier alternative to whole eggs. Because if you cook with the whole egg, then you have the yolk that has all of the fat and cholesterol. So everyone you know, is probably familiar with the concept now of egg white omelets, but yet you couldn't buy them packaged in cartons in the UK. So um, I kind of thought it would be a good idea to do this. And Alla and I were friends, my business partner, and we kind of got together and wrote the business plan and took it from there. So you've been running this for 14 years? We have. Wow. So it was launched in the UK in 2007? Yes, we launched it into Selfridges. And then we, um, we kind of went from there and rolled out into the retailers, you know, so the Sainsbury's, Tesco, Waitrose, Ocado. And do you find that people get it when you explain to them that it's just the whites and not the yolks and no shells? At the start, definitely not. It was a real educational process. Um, Even the supermarket buyers didn't understand what it was. And, you know, getting it listed, you kind of really had to explain this. And we had to do a lot of, have a presence at a lot of food shows, the kind of BBC Good Food Show, Taste of London, all of these things. And then it was kind of educating the consumer. No, no, nobody was familiar with the concept. But now when we speak to people, a lot of people say, oh, I've heard of it or I have a friend who uses it. Yes, because I've met lots of people over the years and I've, you know, who, have, who are pitching in new products. I've seen them sitting literally in the, in the reception area of Waitrose, who are, who are a client of mine for many years, waiting to pitch their products. It's a long slog. Um, even getting into the door of these major supermarkets is hard. And then you've got to support 
your product with a with a media campaign. Um, it's quite a slow burn before you can sort of see see good returns. Um, tell us about some of those early conversations you have with retailers because it is very difficult. How did you get in the door? How did you persuade people that it was a viable idea? Um, we had a we had a kind of a, I, th- I think first of all there was a an element of just um, really believing in the idea and wanting to buy the product ourselves. So I think we, you kind of have to start with that kind of belief. And then um, we we launched in Selfridges and we logged ourselves from Selfridges and I approached the Waitrose buyer and that was, I, I knew a food broker a little and he recommended that. So that was the very beginning. And then it was literally a question of, I think I had the buyers on retail. We never used a kind of middleman, never used a broker. And I would literally try them like a hundred times a day. Of course, you know, not mobiles, landlines, no one can tell I'm doing this. And of course, at a certain point, you get them on the phone. And then it was just a question of never giving up. And then, you know, as soon as I have them on the phone, I I want I would always try to secure a meeting. I'd at this point also be emailing them with a presentation, following up. So it was it was kind of persevering. And then, you know, the second we have one retailer, it's easier to get the next. And, and then I suppose it continues that way. But it yeah. was, and also show, showing the success in the US. So, you know, I'd, I'd go and meet a supermarket buyer and say, you know, this is, this is what it's doing in America and this is what it could do here. And it was getting them used to the concept and why people would buy into it. And you were a journalist. So did you give that up and literally start from scratch plugging this? Or did you keep one hand in your scribbling career while you were cracking eggs with the other hand? No, I actually gave it up on the advice, again, of this food broker. He said, you you need to give up your day job. You will not be able to start a business um, if you don't commit to this, which was probably true because it was it was a great deal of work. I, I actually did work part-time for a PR company when we launched um, a couple of days a week, and that was quite helpful because it was enough for me to do all the PR when we when we began because we had no budget to do anything so mm-hmm. that enabled me to you know do all that side for us and as you were you know pushing your eggs uphill so to speak were there moments when you thought you know this isn't working I'm not making enough income I'm not making any income we're not profitable yet tell us about those those moments and tell us about the moment when you realized actually this was a business and uh, your bank manager started smiling at you? Um, yeah, there were lots of moments. I mean, at the beginning, we didn't even think we could find a producer who could do what we wanted. Um, you know, we didn't think we could pack it the way we wanted. It, it was it was very, very difficult. We didn't even think we could find an investment initially because neither Ala or I had any experience in business or food and nobody wanted to give us any money to start up on. So, yeah, it was, in, it was incredibly hard. And I remember even at the start that we couldn't, you know, these boxes would come in and kind of um, 80 units of 18s and we would have to re-box them into sixes and sit in a kind of huge fridge for three hours doing this. And then at the start, we kind of leafleted outside supermarkets just in, you know, we'd drive around stores and do that um, to try and get the word out there and, and didn't draw salaries uh, for a while either. Um, I think when we got... I think getting Sainsbury's, that was our first. We actually got the John Lewis Food Hall. Um, but, you know, bef- but the, our, we were rolled out into about 30 Sainsbury's stores. And that was the moment where I think we both kind of felt, OK, we're kind of getting some traction. I mean, you know, when we started, I, I didn't even think that we'd get launched in one store, really. Or, or I didn't not think. I just kind of was open minded about it. And I think when we got the first kind of supermarket chain, then that was the moment that, you know, I saw that this could. And, and then I suppose when we um, kind of, if you kind of, we, we won, um, we got quite 
we won a kind of entrepreneurial spirit awards. Um, and that was quite a nice moment. And uh, things like that, you kind of think, OK, there's mm-hmm. a level of recognition. So how does an egg turn up in a two chicks carton? Who's cracking the eggs and separating the yolks? And then even more importantly, what's happening to the yolks? So the eggs are separated um, by a big piece of machinery and kind of uh, split off. And then the yolks are never wasted. So they get used separately by kind of cake companies, mayonnaise companies and we just take the whites okay so we've got a carton in the fridge now i know that uh, it makes a mean gin or whiskey sour lovely bit of frothy egg white i don't think i've ever had an an egg white omelette perhaps you can convince me to change i i sort of feel the flavors in the yolk but what are the key um recipes that uh, you think that two chicks really help to to make sing yeah definitely i mean look omelettes i think you have to it's like anything, you, you choose your battles, don't you? Of course, you know, if you eliminate fat, fat is always going to taste good. But if you're looking for that kind of health benefit of the egg wise, then I quite like to flavour the omelette with something like sun-dried tomatoes, something that has quite a strong flavour. Um, I like to do it with spinach, smoked salmon. What else? Frittatas is another thing I like to make with them. And then you can kind of, um, I know that some people kind of stir them into porridge you know, even for their kids to kind of give them a protein fix. Wow. So stirring into porridge, omelettes, drinks, um, anything else? You know, do we wash our hair in it, clean our toes? Are there any other, are there any other things? Can we lather our skin in egg, in egg white? I mean, you can. It makes a good face mask. It's a very good tightening <laughs> face mask. Yes. And I've heard of people kind of washing their kind of horses' tails and manes in it. So. <laughs> wow. So, Anna, where do you see this um, this brand going? Do you... Do you see other products joining the two chicks mothership? Yes, um, I definitely do. Uh, so basically, our, our kind of brand value is that we bring innovative, convenient products to market that we could that we wanted ourselves but couldn't find. So basically, like the egg whites that weren't on the market here. Um, yes, we have a few new products coming out soon, which are in keeping with our brand vision of this kind of healthier, convenient products, which you know, were, were not available before. Yeah, great. Well, listen, um, Anna, it's great to catch up with you. Thanks for taking us through that wonderful story. I always have great admiration for people, you know, who, who've got the determination and the, the patience to bring products to market. And of course, let's face it, we love them when they bind themselves on to the magnificent podcast that's Biting Talk. So listen, thank you for joining us on this uh, fun journey of uh, the world's most lively food and drink show it's lovely to have you on the show and uh, all the best and thanks for being on biting talk thank you for having me william well he's become one of our favorite spanish chefs in the united kingdom not just through his books but through his fabulous uh, brand of tapas revolution restaurants. They're spreading like wildfire across the country. I'm delighted that uh, he's made a return to Biting Talk because we've had him on this show before. But it's uh, a great welcome to Biting Talk to the wonderful Omar Alaboy. Hello. Good afternoon. You're at home in Wilsdon. You stayed up far too late drinking too much kava last night celebrating your wife's birthday. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm a little bit hangover, I have to say, which is uncommon these days. But uh, is it? Yes, but you're v- such a very big welcomed. Uncommon, but very welcomed. <laughs> what does Omar Alaboy cook for his wife at home when it's her birthday? Good question. You catch me here. You would expect uh, a Spanish dish, but the reality is that I've been so busy 
opening um, my new restaurant in Brighton that uh, she was away last week. So I took that opportunity to make a vegetarian lasagna, which I froze in the, in the home of my neighbors so that it could be all a surprise. So actually it was a, a last minute surprise for her. She only realized there was 15 friends coming um, when two slightly more farther away friends, kind of uh, not the closest, appear and said, what are these people doing here? And, uh, and then she realized it was, there was a, a lot more people coming. <laughs> And then there were some nibbles. Um, there were some nibbles, obviously, some charcuterie, some, um, you know, snacks and, and, and a salad. But it was all quite healthy, I have to say. Now, you mentioned your new branch of Tapas Revolution uh, in Brighton, which brings, I think, unless I'm incorrect, um, the number up to eight, which makes you the largest Spanish uh, restaurant group boss in the UK. Yes, that is correct. Were there idiosyncrasies of the Brighton Spanish food lovers, any differences to what you might get in Birmingham or Blue Water or Newcastle or Westfield in London? I would say it's the biggest difference we've faced so far. Uh, you know, it's very, it's a very young city uh, to start with, very buried. You see uh, people from all walks of life, uh, more, than, more than you see anywhere else in the UK. And uh, one of the things, as you know from Brighton, is that one in every four restaurants is vegetarian, sorry. So we've had to expand that side of the menu ex exclusively in Brighton with a vegans special. That is five dishes that will keep changing uh, every week uh, just to complement the, the, the offer that we do. And that's quite hard for a, for a Spaniard. I mean, I, I remember going to a tapas bar in Madrid and a friend of mine who was you know vegetarian ordering you know, just a plate of tomatoes. And of course, it came covered in ham. Even, <laughs> you know, that's that's the sort of natural instinct of the Spanish chef, isn't it? Completely. And, uh, and that is allowed in Spain. <laughs> that's acceptable. It's acceptably vegan. Uh, but uh, no, no, very quite rightly. For us, it's uh, it's not common. You, you know, we, we do eat a lot of vegetables, but we eat them with fish and meat. And uh, well, I can actually, I have them in front of me because I was working on them for next week of what I have. So ne next week, there'll be a vegan paella for two to share, which has peppers, two artichokes. Then I have a cauliflower popcorn with the Moorish spices that we use in the south of Spain. They'll have some confit artichokes with some pine nuts and lemon dressing, uh, some boletus mushrooms croquettes with a truffle mayonnaise, which I do the bechamel with oat milk instead of uh, dairy, and I don't use, obviously, butter. I use extra virgin olive oil and then some chickpeas and spinach a la catalana. So that is, those will be, uh, you know, next week's specials. So it's not, it's not too, it's not too, it's not difficult in any way. Some things we like to, to try to stick to the traditional recipe and substitute ingredients to make it vegan. And in other cases, uh, we just do vegan creations. I mean, I'm really open and, and easygoing about it. It's very nice to hear the boss of a food brand, uh, boss of a restaurant chain, actually talk about the food, because one of the difficulties of growing a business is that once you become, uh, you know, a, a large or medium size firm and you're selling food and drink, it becomes 
about the numbers and it becomes all about the rents and 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 all of the other difficulties that go with being a business yeah how do you keep yourself um in touch with the food and not just doing the numbers and all the other tasks that are involved in running a big business. I have to say, it's really easy. And, and look, we've bought restaurants from other companies. We see how they operate. And, and I can't work out why they need so many overheads and head office stuff. Uh, you know, we try to keep it really simple, really traditional. We're a very small team, um, you know, and and and... And I have to say, we, we nearly continue to run it as when we only had two restaurants. Uh, you know, it's just delegating the tasks to, to the teams of people in the restaurants because at the end, that they know better their market, their contacts. Their, so we don't have a he- head of sales, head of marketing, head of, you know, we just don't, we've never got involved in that, I have to say. You know, we have a small uh, PR that we outsource, and then it's it's all operational, hands on. We and we all are. We are in the restaurants. You know, I I am going to Brighton uh, tomorrow morning. I was there last week. Uh, we we just I don't know. We just keep it quite uh, quite close to our chest, uh, just like you would do with one restaurant. Yeah, nice to hear that. And long may that continue. Did you? keep in touch with uh, with the business over Zoom? Did you manage to keep some of these places open uh, over the last 12 months? I have to say, uh, we didn't open many. Uh, we only tried the takeaways, just that tapas is not particularly good for takeaway. The small portions, they go cold in the liver room and, and our food is all fresh. So it, uh, it does suffer, you know, it's really easy for Asians, maybe burgers, pizza. Uh, our food is not, it doesn't travel that well. And as you know, we, we are about the restaurants, you know, so we, we just left it. We obviously incur losses as a result, but uh, I have to say um, landlords have been very generous with us and, mm-hmm. and offer us rent-free uh, periods and things like that, which has kept us in, in a good position moving forward. I have to say, we, we have no concerns. Okay, well, that's very good to hear. Now, another string to your bow is your publishing. Yes, um, I'm glad glad to see that Spanish Made Simple is popping out again as a compact edition for this June. Yes, full of easy paellas and tapas and and some Spanish puddings and so on. Um, there are some wonderful dishes in there. Um, because I can't really speak Spanish, but I like to give it a go. Can you translate beer braised ribs, please? And I'll have a go at it. Um, it's it's um, eh, eh, costillas a la cerveza. Costillas a la a la cerveza. Yep, a very simple very recipe. Uh, I have to say, really delicious. And one, I mean, you've nailed it in the in the head here because I get posted on Instagram or in Twitter uh, a lot of people that cooks this particular recipe, so they find it really easy. Uh, and that's what the book is about. It does look beautiful. Now let's talk about gazpacho because some people find the idea of cold soup uh, quite tough. Um, also, there's often an argument about chopping those vegetables yourselves because if you put them in the whizzer, you tend to emulsify it. What in the eyes of Omar Alibi makes a great uh, gazpacho? And would you have a very long, cool glass of fino to help it down. Ah, well, or even inside <laughs> to thin it down. 
Um, ah. <laughs> that's a good. Uh, it becomes a bit of um, uh, oh, I forgot the name. Uh, that's 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 because I'm Hamgova. <laughs> I'll talk it to you. <laughs> what, what, what's the, the the tomato juice cocktail? <laughs> Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. There you go. So, yes, uh, you turn. Oh yes, you turn a gazpacho into a really sophisticated Bloody Mary. That's a fantastic. Now, now I'm sold on a gazpacho. Yeah, it's yeah. not a soup. It's a it's a Spanish Bloody Mary. And in Spain, when traditionally would someone have a bowl of gazpacho? So a bowl, you would normally have it as a starter uh, during the uh, the summer months. This is a very summery dish, uh, both at home or in a restaurant. And then the other way of eating it is from a jug, from a glass, you know, which we do normally uh, keep a bottle of gazpacho through the summer months in the fridge, you know, and uh, and you just pour yourself a glass whenever you fancy, in the same way as people would have a green juice. Yeah, just a little, a little, uh, a little shot, just to liven the palate before yeah. you get stuck into all the other Spanish goodies. Omar, it's fantastic to catch up with you. Best of luck um, in Brighton. Thanks very um, much. Hope Spanish made simple uh, floods the the publishing market, and everyone get stuck in making their uh, tortillas and so on at home. It's wonderful to speak to you. Omar Alaboy, thanks for being on Biting Talk. Thank you, William. Well, my darling listener, we're nearly at the end of the show. Not quite, of course, because there's a man who's going to brighten our lives. He is the CEO, the founder, the VP uh, he's the chairman of the House of Haydari. His name is Farhad Haydari. He's in his kimono. He's squatting on the floor doing press-ups. He's got a cocktail shaker in, in one hand. He's like the cat in the hat. He's balancing ingredients on his the balls of his feet. It's, it's Farhad Haydari. Uh, delighted to be back on, William. You missed the, the most important title, which is Chief Mixologist. That was, uh, that, you, you missed that one in the oh. uh, expansive CV that you read very kindly. Thank you. I just took that as uh, assumed amongst uh, your other titles. Listen, Farhad, um, you've got a cocktail for us. You always have a cocktail for us. We are linked with two chicks. We spoke to Anna. We know about egg whites and... Uh, uh, what to do with them. You, however, are going to take us one step further. Exactly. Our drink this week is the Gin Fizz. And it's a classic sour cocktail, William, that incorporates that ingredient that amateur mixologists are sometimes sort of disinclined to use, those aforementioned egg whites. Uh, so we're going to now take their products, our delightful friends, Anna and Ala, the two chicks, and uh, make a cocktail with it. So let's get started. We're gonna pour two ounces or four tablespoons of gin. I've gone with Old Tom, which is a new release by Ireland's Boatyard Distillery, into our trusty shaker, along with three quarters of an ounce or one and a half tablespoons of freshly squeezed lemon juice, a half an ounce or one tablespoon of simple syrup. And then the equivalent of one egg white. And that goes into our shaker. This time it's not filled with ice. We're going to dry shake these ingredients for 15 seconds, William. And that allows the protein in the egg white to begin to form a foam instead of sort of being diluted by the ice. Then we add the ice and then we shake for another 30 seconds. We strain that into a wide, low, heavy bottom glass Top it with soda water, or the UK equivalent. We had this uh, issue last week. Garnish with a lemon twist and boom! 
you've got a perfectly balanced sweetened tart cocktail and also one that's low in cholesterol thanks to the aforementioned two chicks and their effortless egg whites. <laughs> and that, that is your two minute biting tart cocktail as the alarm ushering the end of this cocktail sounds in the background. <laughs> He's a magician, he's a marvel. Of course, he's a mixologist. Uh, he is the man. He is Farhad Hidari. Farhad, back to the Twilight home. Lock yourself up. I'll see you next week. Uh, absolutely. Look forward to it, William. All the best. Thank you, Farhad. For no mixing and no froth, head to williamshousewines.com where a fresh collection of epic rosé sits waiting to be delivered to your door. And the Manara Pinot Grigio is only £10.50 and has a screw cap for emergency access. That's all we have time for. My thanks to Javier, Anna and Omar. Biting Talk comes to you with Two Chicks. You can find them as Two Chicks products on Instagram. Head there now for frothy sours, epic meringues, out-of-this-world omelettes and no bad yolks. Biting Talk is a front ear production. I'm William Sipwell. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.